Good morning, church. Uh, to piggyback off what Will said earlier, um, I am I am known to uh, make up words, to switch up what I'm thinking in my head. I, I think I have a mild dyslexia. I've been known to make up prophets in the Old Testament called Halakai. Uh, I'm known to make up words like exclamatory. Uh, and sometimes I'll say things like Jesus is not the son of God, meaning when I really mean Jesus is the son of God. So in other words, what I'm trying to lay before you is if there's something that I say that you think, hey, that's really off, or you have a question about something that I say, I would love to talk with you about it. Uh, I appreciate, Will, your humility in, in bringing that up, but if there's any questions or concerns about something that I say, uh, I would love to clarify if I can. And I think, needless to say, today's passage has the potential to be one of those sermons, right? Okay, I, I can sense it in this room that there is a tension going on right now. Okay, hearing the, the words that Peter just read, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, there's an aspect in which I think the women in here are like, oh gosh, what's Daniel going to say? And there might be an aspect in the men like, yeah, Daniel, get him. You know, uh, in the life of the Mountain Church, we've talked about uh, marital dynamics, gender roles in marriage uh, before. We we looked at this uh, in a little different way, but when we went through our study through Ephesians, specifically Ephesians five, and although the focus of First Peter three one through seven is uh, a lot different than Ephesians five, there's a similar dynamic of of headship and submission. That if you want uh, a further resource, you want uh, maybe something that might help in this. Uh, I would encourage you to look back at that, that sermon. It was preached on April 29th. I think when you're looking at our website, that's the easiest way to find a sermon. It's actually looking at the date um, or in the series. The, the sermon is called The Mystery of Marriage. And you remember, if you were with us in uh, the life of the church in that season through Ephesians, Ephesians 5 really focused on the men. I mean, there was like a little bit of verses directed to the, the women, but remember the majority of the emphasis was placed upon the men as the leader of the home. Okay, well, today is a little bit different. You can see as we, or as you heard, Peter read through the text, most of the emphasis is placed on the wife. There's seven verses that we're looking at today. Six verses are directed toward the wives, one toward the men. Okay, so I, I hope that you don't not sing it. Oh, Daniel's really, man, him and Stephanie must have fought or something because he's really, you know, trying to, preach at the wives, I'm, I'm preaching the passage, okay? And the passage is directed uh, most uh, specifically, I think, and the focus is directed at the wives, okay? What I don't, too, want to see in, in the sermon or in the passage uh, this morning is oftentimes when talking about marriage, there can be a tendency that you're listening to this sermon to, to hear all the things that your spouse should or shouldn't do, okay? So you're going to be nudging your spouse during the sermon or Maybe some of you are, are broken up and some of are upstairs or some are out. Maybe that's a blessing this week. But uh, <laughs> uh, with all that being said, let me invite you to open your Bibles to First uh, Peter 3. Like I said before, today we're looking at verses 1 through 7. Peter opens saying, likewise, wives. And the likewise is connecting all the way back to chapter 2, Verses 11 through 12, when Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may speak against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. Okay, so this passage that he's introducing, Peter, he's talking about keeping your conduct honorable so that others would glorify God through you. Then he addresses what Will looked at last week, the governing authorities. Be subject to the governing authorities. Be subject to the, the rulers. Honor the emperor. Then he talks about be subject to your masters if you are a slave. And we looked at that being kind of similar to a job situation in our modern day and age. Be subject to your boss. Honor your boss. So in that same thought now, Peter is now specifically directing uh, the wives who are under the authority of men. Or not men, not all men in general, husbands. Um, Peter is addressing, I think, uh, looking back and connecting it to chapter 2, 11 through 13, when he says, uh, the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Okay, I think that's an important verse to keep in mind because uh, I don't think we naturally, in ourselves, want to submit to the governing authorities. Right? We, we feel like we're our own savior and lords. We can choose right from wrong. We're, we're better bosses. It's not something we naturally do. And more specifically, I don't think it's something that wives naturally do is subject themselves to their husbands in the natural state. <laughs> I've yet to talk to a woman that is really jacked about that. Maybe there's some in this room, but I have yet to meet one. The reality of the flesh is that we have a problem with authority. That's why I think what Peter is addressing when he says be subject, he's getting back to this passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The reality that the body, the flesh, the sinful nature is waging war against the soul, the spirit. Make sense? You guys following with me? Okay. In our, in our flesh, we don't want people telling us what we can or can't do. We don't want to be subject to others. We don't want to be... Uh, we want to be our own emperor, bosses, managers, and this is the reality of our fallen nature. I was really reminded of that this week as uh, we've started softball practice with the middle school girls. Uh, many of you know that I, I, I help coach uh, softball, girls softball in middle school. And it never fails that we usually have most of the team in middle school has never played softball. So we're teaching them the basics of throwing, of hitting, the basics of the game. And just this past week, there was a girl who, she'd only played a year, and uh, I've played baseball almost my whole life, uh, swinging, hitting, played in high school, I've coached for a long time. And I said, hey, and, and Coach Finn said, hey, why don't you try this? And the girl said, no, I I'm going to do it my own way. I know what's better. It, this is just a clear example, I think, of the reality of our natural state. We don't want to listen to authority. We're our own savior, our own Lord. You don't tell me what to do. I, I'm going to do it myself. And in our flesh, in our ego, in our fallen nature, this is our uh, tendency towards authority. But I want, to, I want us to be mindful of this before we jump in that this is what the basis of headship and submission is what God has laid forth from the beginning of the creation of marriage. And God is good. His ways are better. His ways are perfect. And we know as his children that he has what's best for us. So even if there might be something in us that bristles against this, submission, oh, God's commandment for wives to submit to their husbands is for their good and for God's glory. Oftentimes, though, it seems like uh, 
we don't keep this in mind, right? We believe that God's word is somehow constricting or confining. It's some sort of duty. It's, it's oppressive. It's not really what we deserve or need. Okay, this is the lie that Adam and Eve, in fact, bought all the way from the beginning. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they believe that God was not good, that he was, in fact, withholding something good from them, that he, was, he didn't want them to be like him, so he was like making these rules that were restricting, confining, not for their good, and they sinned against God. They rebelled against him. So on top of this sinful disposition to authority because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve, God also lays out a very specific command, which I think we also need to be mindful this morning. So in light of all this, our fallen tendencies, realities, uh, God records a specific curse or a tendency that, that he gives wives in Genesis 3.15. He says, or excuse me, Genesis 3.16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In this verse, we see that God is describing an unraveling of his perfect uh, plan and design for marriage. That God created the man to be the leader, to be the head, to lovingly provide and protect and care for the wife. He created the wife to come alongside the man as the ally and help, submit, affirm, encourage his leadership. And this verse describing the curse is, talks about this unraveling of that. So now the wife does not come alongside to honor and affirm the husband. She wants to rule over him. She has a desire for his leadership. She had a desire to control or to uh, undercut or to thwart his leadership. And now the husband has, has a, a tendency, a desire to put the woman in her place, rule over her, domineer, abuse. And this, we don't have to look far, I don't think, in, in our culture or even in our own experience to see this is the reality of a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, joined together, set on sin, not having God's redemptive new nature inside of them. Right? Although originally God has created husband and wife to be a beautiful complement of one another, sin has distorted, destroyed, and unraveled God's good and beautiful creation. Instead of husbands lovingly giving themselves to their wives, they are now prone to domineer and abuse the wife. Wives, instead of respecting and helping and supporting the husband, joyfully and following his leadership, they subvert, they undercut, they challenge, they assert, they oppose, they are prone to control. And this is the reason for power struggles, for conflicts, for damage, for strife between a husband and wife, because they're driven, motivated, fueled by rebellion against God, rebelling against their God-given design and, and function. That's the bad. That's, that's a little bit of what I want to address. I think why there might be some bristling or some tension in the room. Submission is a good thing. God submits to God. I think that God created husband and wife, man and wife in this way to reflect the very nature of God. Because what we see throughout the scriptures is that the father takes the, the primary initiative. The son submits to the father. You see this in the garden. Jesus says, hey, this is my plan. But, Father, your will be done. I, I trust you. I submit to you. You see, the Spirit submits to both the, the Father and the Son. So there's this beautiful union and, and working and dynamic and relationship in the Godhead himself. So creating husband and wife and marriage in, to reflect that nature, submission is a good thing. Amen? The good news is that Jesus has come. 
He has caused us by his great mercy to be born again, and we have a new nature. We are freed to live as we were intended to do. So the good news, I think, of the passage this morning is that Paul's saying, wives, submit to your husbands because of this new reality. You have caused to be born again. It starts there. Once God has changed us and transformed our nature so that we now see him as good and a loving father, we see his commands as for our good and, and we delight in his commands. We want to follow him. We want to live as he created us to live. We want to function as a wife or as a husband as God has created us to function. Amen? Does that make sense? Following with me? If you're here this morning and you're curious or skeptical about the claims of Christianity and all of this stuff is like, this is crazy. I will never submit to a man ever. Let me first invite you to look at Jesus. He will come to him first. He will change you. He will transform you. See his word as good. See his word as his law as delightful. It'll change. Not, I don't, maybe not all at once, but slowly, progressively, God's word will become like we said, it will be honey, it will be sweet to us, and it'll, we will see that God is for us and that his word is for our flourishing. So with all that being said, uh, notice now that when Peter says, wives, be subject to all men everywhere. Notice, that's not what he says. And it, I don't want to be charged from the stage by uh, you women. He says, be subject to your own husbands. They're to be subject to their own husbands. And this word, uh, I don't know if I've defined it yet, to be submissive. Uh, it means to become inclined or willing to follow, showing an inclination to submit. Uh, it doesn't mean following in sin. It doesn't mean becoming like a dog, becoming a doormat. It doesn't mean suffering through abuse. Uh, the role of the wife is to come alongside the man and serve as his ally, his helper, to affirm and encourage his leadership. And similarly, just with the government, submission does not depend on how worthy or responsible a emperor, a governing authority, a ruler, a master is. It depends on God's good and perfect purposes in his word. Uh, John Piper defines submission like this. Submission is a divine calling of a wife to joyfully and fearlessly honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. I think supernatural, super, submission takes supernatural help because like, in our flesh, we don't want to do this. And I think Peter is urging the Christian wives to stop the crazy cycle, stop the power struggle, stop the fighting. Let your submission your test, be a testimony to the power of the gospel. Let your marriage be a witness to the power of the gospel that transforms you from the inside out and makes you an agent for mission. So wives, submit to your husbands. And he says to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now in my study this week, this was... This was interesting to me that in the Greco-Roman world, in the ancient culture, it, was very, uh, it wasn't the norm for a, a wife to have a different religion from a husband. It was assumed, it was the kind of cultural norm that the wife would adopt whatever religion the husband practiced. In fact, uh, if you, any of you have the ESV study Bible, there's a, there's a great comment in the notes there. It says, for example, the Greek historian Plutarch said, who was about AD 50 to AD 120, he said this, listen to this, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friend her own. 
The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. So while today we might view this as like, you know, oppressive women submitting to men, uh, in that time, Peter was kind of freeing, he was empowering, I think, that if you have been caused to be born again, you do not follow your husband's religion if he has not been caused to be born again. You don't, you don't leave, you don't just ditch him. There's a way in which you live with an unbelieving husband that is geared towards getting him to believe. That's what I thought was interesting. It says, uh, let your conduct, uh, it says, uh, that if some do not obey the word, referring to unbelieving husbands, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wife. That's why we see submission does not mean agreeing on everything. They have a very different agreement on probably the most important thing, who you believe in, who your God is, who has saved you. But Peter is addressing the wives as they live in accordance with an unbelieving husband. How are they to behave in that way? Don't undercut his leadership. Don't ditch or leave. Don't preach or nag. Allow your gentle deference to his leadership, your affirmation and respect, magnify the gospel and draw him towards Christ. That's what Peter is saying. This is what Peter was getting at when he says the phrase, uh, without a word. It means, I think, not, don't ever talk to him. Once you become a believer, you are now no longer to talk with an unbelieving husband. That's a little ridiculous. What it means is, uh, and it doesn't mean keep your belief a secret. Like, he's going to be surprised when he finds out that now you've become a Christian. You've been born again. I think what it means is don't preach. Don't nag. Don't continually remind. It means that if you have been born again, your husband may be drawn to Christ by your changed conduct. So allow him to see the way you interact, see the gospel changing your heart and the way that you interact with him that will draw him to Christ. That's what Peter is getting at. R.C. Sproul says it like this. The enduring principle involved in this statement is not strict verbal silence, but a submissive demeanor and sensitivity to the concerns of the unbelieving husband so that the gospel may be presented in the best light. The conduct of a wife toward an unbelieving husband is intended to have an outward bent, a focus, a mission. In this sense of an unbelieving husband, submission is, is part of mission. It's part of drawing them to Christ. I think if uh, there's a, I don't know if this would be helpful, but if you need help being mindful of this or reminding of this, you know that you can't have submission without the word mission. Submission is missional. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's supposed to draw them to Christ. And Peter says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Respectful means that fearing uh, God, pure conduct. You respect and you value, you fear God above all things. And because of that, now you, you honor and esteem and hold high. You respect your husband. You're pure. You're faultless. You have no faults. And this conduct is to be a witness to the gospel. And this, the, the principle behind this is, Christian wives be set apart. Like Will mentioned last week in talking about as Christians, we should be the best citizens. The reality of a Christian wife is should be the best wife. Okay? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if this would make sense. I'm sure this illustration breaks on it at some point, but there should be a sense in which guys want to marry Christian women. They are great wives. They're the best wives. 
And, in, and because of that, that draws them to Christ. I couldn't help but think, uh, as we're looking at this passage and the focus that Peter gives and the responsibility that he gives uh, to the wife in submission and drawing them to Christ is, that uh, I think a helpful question, if you're a wife, would be, if you are married to an unbeliever, is your conduct respectful and pure, and would your husband, quote, be one to Christ by the way you interact and live and are married to him? And now, if you are married to another believer, which is a lot of the women in this room, try to think about this in those terms. Imagine if your husband was not a believer. Would the way you interact with him, the way you speak with him, the way you speak about him, the way that you submit to him, respect him, honor him, if your husband was not a believer, would he be drawn to Christ by the way you interact with him? I know that's hard and, and an abstract way to think about because you know, my, if you're a wife, my husband is married. Uh, my, classic example, my, if you're here this morning and you're both believers, it's hard to think about that because my husband already is a believer, so why would I behave like that? But I think it's helpful to think about, right? Is your interaction with your husband, would he be drawn to Christ by it? That's a lot of responsibility, isn't it? That's a big call. Peter continually addresses wives, but I think the, the other... Uh, Verses in here have principles that ring true of women in general. He says in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry of the clothing that you wear. I think what Peter's getting at is he doesn't want wives who are married to unbelieving husbands to think, well, if I just was pretty enough, if I just put on the right clothing, that would draw him. If I was just attractive enough for him, then he would think my faith is more real. Again, in this time period, uh, art from the first century shows that the way of the culture in this time was uh, excessive hairstyles. These, these braided hair and this gold jewelry that was, that was showy. And women were to look up to it, and, and Peter's addressing this vanity. Don't let your, your concern, your focus be on external things. Right? Like, how true is that in our culture today? The Bible is so relevant, isn't it? We have intricate, complex hairdos, showy and pretentious jewelry was common. And he says to wives and women, be more concerned with the hidden person of the heart, the inside, the inner beauty of the heart. In contrast to the world, Christian women are to be set apart by focusing not on the external, but on the internal, on godly character. This is a way that Christian women and wives especially can be set apart. I have yet to see a commercial where a woman comes forward, or a man, whatever the case may be, and the, the slogan, the, the message is gentle and quiet spirit. It's what men want. <laughs> What's kind of the marketing ploy? Let's, make a, let's dress this woman in scandalous clothing. Right? Let's show off her body. Not let's show off her character and her spirit. Women are just as blasted. I think the media is just as saturated with this focus, getting women to look pretty. Focus on what, what to wear to look sexy. Now, we can't on the flip side say, well, no braided hair, no jewelry. Because of this, Stephanie, no longer can you wear any jewelry. Hair has to be down or up. 
no braids. That's ridiculous because that would mean that she would also wear no clothing. Because what does Peter say? Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Okay, so the focus cannot be, don't do this, but the focus is, be more concerned with your character than with your mirror. God cares most about the inner heart. Right? Anyone in the world can dress themselves up on the outside. Anyone can do that. But God creates a, a transformed inner character, an inner beauty, an inner person that shines. This is in verse 4. Don't let your adorning, or excuse me, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The word gentle here means humble as opposed to harsh. It's sometimes translated meek, uh, just as Jesus says, blessed are the meek in Matthew 5, 5, just as Jesus came in not with a harshness of military power, but with a humility and, and service. Meek means characterized by being humble, gentle, and mild. Right? Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the complainers. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the harsh, the loud. Quiet here means a sense of peace as opposed to the loudness of war. It means a calming presence. Think about a, a still lake. It means tranquil, being untroubled and free from disturbance, especially free of noise and uproar. Think serene. This is what Peter wants the women and the wives to focus on. Adorn yourself with this, with a peace, with a, a humility, a gentleness. Don't give yourselves to complaining, to cutting down, to gossiping, to being harsh, to uh, rising and falling emotionally, to lashing out in a quick, sharp tongue. Give yourself to being gentle and humble. And Peter says that this is very precious in God's sight. This is imperishable beauty. Right, I think we need to start changing the, the, the words and the ideas, the scorecards in regards to how we even think about beauty. Right, like I have two daughters, a two-year-old and a six-month-old. I want to instill this kind of beauty in my daughters, which means when Addison's wearing a dress or her hair looks nice, I'm not going to say, you look beautiful. What is that reinforcing? Outside. Outside appearance. What I want to encourage and draw out of her is, hey, when that kid came up and took the toy and lashed out at you, and you responded gently, that is beautiful. That is precious in God's sight. Isn't that what we instill and draw in our, in our daughters, in the, the young women of this church? What this also means is that if you want to know if you're beautiful, women, don't look in the mirror. Don't look at magazines, at media. Look at the heart. Ask God. This is a beauty that will never fade. Okay, we know external looks, beauty, they fade. As much as we want to nip and tuck and inject, and it's fleeting. You're not going to look as good as you were in your 20s when you're 40. Right? It just, it's gonna, your body kind of breaks down and deteriorates. You base your beauty and your hope on this, that's perishable. The beauty of the heart, imperishable. Precious in God's sight. 
Another question, wives, in reflecting upon this, is this how your husband, your coworkers, your children would describe you? Gentle and humble, meek and tranquil. Humble, calm, in the midst of disturbance, in the midst of noise and uproar, tranquil. In the midst of complaining, gossip and slander, engaging with others in the workplace, engaging with other women around that might quickly go to this, quiet. Is this how your husband, your coworkers, your children would describe you? Do you pursue peace? Do you engage in grace? Let's be mindful of this beauty. Let's make this our measurable, if you will. Not waist size and facial features, but the hidden beauty of the heart. Amen? The beauty of submission. Let's remind our daughters that the gospel changes a woman from the inside out and her self-image and worth is not found in the world and what culture tells her is pretty, sexy, or attractive, but what is precious and pretty in God's sight. Wives and women, I pray that you'll strive for this imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So, wives to be subject to your husband, which means I think mission, our submission is, is, is missional. It means that submission is beautiful in God's sight. And it means, thirdly, that submission is how the holy women who hoped in God adorned themselves. Peter builds this out a little bit more. He gives an example of this. It says, uh, verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, it might be a funny joke, husbands, you know, joke around with your wife. This means you should call me Lord. (laughs) But this was an ancient uh, Eastern expression of just referring to uh, a husband respectfully. When when Sarah called Abraham Lord, it means it was a respectful way of talking about it. And what was fascinating to me as I was studying this passage is if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, there are multiple other instances and examples in which Peter could have drawn, this is what submission looks like. Right? If, you're, if you're not familiar with your scriptures, you know, there, there's a story. This guy named Abraham is married to a, a girl named Sarah. They come to a, Egypt, and Abraham's kind of scared. He's frightened about what might happen. So he, he tells the people that his, Sarah was his sister, and he kind of gives Sarah up. That's, that's not a good thing to do for a husband, <laughs> right? Giving your wife up, oh, she's just my sister. You know, she's not my wife. That's a coward move, man. That's not cool. Right? And what a great, ex- I mean, you're talking about submission. Sarah, wow. But Peter doesn't go there. He goes to a, an obscure kind of, uh, it seems like an off-the-cuff expression from Sarah in Genesis 18. This is what Peter draws out this reference from Genesis 18, 12. This is what I think Peter's trying to cue us in on. To give the context of this story, uh, God has come to Abraham and he's promised him that he's going to have a son, that Sarah's going to get pregnant and, and have a son, although they are both really old. And this is what God says in, in Genesis 18, starting in verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And it says, and Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Sarah and, 
and Abraham were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, uh, Sarah was not going to, she was old. She was not going to get pregnant anymore, naturally. And this is what she says in Genesis 18, 12. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? That's the one time Sarah calls Abraham Lord. In the whole Old Testament. That's fascinating to me. Why do you think Peter would draw that out? Why is he getting us to focus on this? I think what it means is that he is showing Sarah's default, natural way of referring to Abraham was respectful. It wasn't a a big time decision where she just laid everything on the line. It was in the day to day, the natural, ordinary ways that she referred to Abraham when he wasn't, it may be even ear sight. That is what submission is. That is the adorning of a gentle, quiet spirit. That is the respectful way in which she was addressing Abraham. I thought that was really cool. An off-the-hand comment. I think it shows that Sarah loved Abraham and she wanted to respect him. This should be the disposition, the posture of a wife to her husband, one of respect. It's not the wife's agenda to cut down the husband, to remind him of his place, to make sure he has, doesn't think too highly of himself. Is the way that you refer and talk about your husband respectful? When no one's around and you're just together with other women, do you refer and speak with your husband in respectful ways, honoring ways? That's what Peter is getting at here. And he says, you are Sarah's children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, there's a, a cool, I think, uh, progression, a, a pattern, a, a series of events that happens uh, in this passage that speaks to the heart of submission. I think what it means is that doing good and not fearing anything is the overflow of hoping in God. It's how the holy women adorned themselves. They, they hoped in God. They didn't fear anything. Submitting themselves to the husband wasn't something they did out of fear. It took courage and boldness. In other words, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, you have confirmed your identity, the reality that you are a holy woman who's hoping in God. That's what I think Peter is getting at here. You are her children if you do good and don't fear anything that's frightening. You're her children if you submit to your husband, you're hoping in God, and you're holy. Deeds overflow out of this identity. So you hope in God, you're fearing God above all things, and you're adorning yourself with submission. What this means is that submission is not for weak-willed women. Submission is a result of becoming fearless and courageous. You're not submitting because you fear men or you fear your husband. Submission is never out of fear. It's out of a boldness and a fearlessness that comes from hope in God. A strength in submission. I don't think the world knows how to do with knows what to do with this, right? Think about some submission. You think about weak-willed becoming a dog, becoming a doormat. I don't want to do that. I'm going to bow up and and I'm going to be strong. I'm going to have whatever the the case may be in our culture. The world does not know what to do with a, a woman who is bold and strong and submissive. That's a paradox they don't know what to do with.
out of this submission, out of this hope in God, out of this uh, fearlessness, this courage, they are consumed with doing good. The Christian wife doesn't want to sit around and waste time. They don't want to waste time on social media, on the internet, watching TV, wasting time on the couch. They don't want to be lazy. They want to do good. The goal, the aim is that if the husband is unbelieving, they will ask, what is the reason that you have? The goal is that others will look at this strong, courageous, bold woman submitting to her husband and ask, that is something I don't see often. That, that doesn't fit in my paradigm. Why? And this leads to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. In your hearts, Christ, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. By God's grace, for an unbelieving husband married to a believing wife, I think the goal and the, the aim, the hope, is that the unbelieving husband will look at the wife and say, wow, a lot of the women that I know, they're, they're stressed, they're anxious, they complain all the time, they're worried, they're frantic, yet you are gentle. You are bold. You are strong. You are meek. You are humble. Why? The goal and hope is that others, as others outside of the church, outside of the, the family of God, look at a Christian marriage and see the wife submitting to her husband in strength, and they say, why? And we get to provide a reason for the hope that they have. Lastly, verse 7, Peter addresses husbands. It says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now notice, all throughout the other passages and the, uh, the people that Peter is referring to in verse 13, where he says, be subject to the Lord's sake, to the emperor, be subject to the governors, uh, slaves or servants, be subject to your masters. Peter never addresses uh, the master or the emperor or the governing authority. But yet in this uh, concept or thought, he addresses the husbands. The one time, the one person that he addresses is the husbands. And he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. The literal uh, phrase for that is according to knowledge. Husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. It means live understanding the needs of your wife. And he says there, show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. That word honor is the same word that Peter uses in talking about honoring the emperor. I think in light of this, when he says, honor the woman as a weaker vessel, it is generally a thought about the general reality is that Peter is referring to the fact that women are generally physically weaker. I get this from also from 2 Corinthians 4, 7, where uh, Paul is using a similar language of vessel referring to body. And uh, especially in this, before uh, the industrial revolution, it was an agricultural society. The men predominantly would have been stronger. And the, the tendency for the men might have been to use their physical strength to domineer, to intimidate, to manipulate, to abuse the, the wife as the weaker vessel. So a husband showing honor to a woman as a weaker vessel, in other words, to say, don't use your physical strength to abuse, control, or threaten. Use the strength to protect, provide, and care. That's what I think honor the woman as the weaker vessel means. According to knowledge, as the weaker vessel means that they are lovingly considerate care of the wife, there to show honor in providing, protecting, and leading the wife. 
Peter reminding the husbands that the wife is the weaker vessel is to invoke a tenderness, a gentle provision, and a protection, a consideration in living with her. There isn't a belittling, there isn't a demeaning, because Peter also reminds the men that the wife is heirs with you of the grace of life. They're spiritual equals. One's not better than the other. There is a respect and equality spiritually among them. This leadership is not lording over. It's a gentle understanding authority that should be expressed. I think the, the heartbeat behind this passage is that husbands should aim to make it a joy for their wives to follow their lead because they're leading and honoring in an understanding way. Notice, too, husbands, that there is a lot that rides on this. I don't know the exact implication of all this means, but it says... Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers might not be hindered. That's a sobering reality as a husband. Like, I'm not living with my wife in an understanding way. God does not pay mind to my prayers. There's a lot riding on this relationship, a lot riding on this understanding, this honor prayers may be hindered. The relationship with God is hindered if husbands fail to honor and treat the wives respectfully, fail to live with her in an understanding way. And if you're married in the room, you know that this is a reality. I feel this at least. When my wife and I are fighting, when I know that I have wronged or hurt, and then pretending like everything's okay in the sight of God or around others, We know, too, if you're married in this room, that it's hard to pray together if you're not unified. And what Peter is saying is that we can't think it's okay if we treat our wives uh, poorly and pretend like God is totally happy with that. It's a sobering reality. Now, I, there's a lot in this passage that I think we could have gone in, in more detail on. There's, uh, maybe if you have any questions raised about what this means or what this practically looks like, uh, I would love to talk with you further about it. But the focus and the heartbeat, I think, behind all of this is mission, is set apart, is wives living in such a way that it's set apart from their culture so that if they're married to an unbeliever, they're one to Christ. If they're married to a believer, their marriage is set apart, and the way they interact with one another is completely different than anything the world sees, and they want to know why. That's, I think, the heartbeat behind what Peter is getting at here. So I pray, in light of this passage, that there will be many conversations to be had. These principles, this response to a life that's centered on the gospel, that uh, the principle of submission, hoping in God, uh, fearing God above all things, adorning yourselves with inner beauty, that, that there would be conversations that would happen in, in marriages this week. We would talk about this. We'd be open and honest. We might even bring in our gospel community leader. On help us. How does this, what does this look like? How can we encourage one another? I pray that the husbands in this church would live with their wives according to knowledge, that they would not use their role, their position of authority to domineer, but to love, to serve, to gently honor, and the wife to take leadership in initiating and being the example. And I also pray that for the wives in this church, we would, that they would hope in God above all things, 
that they would fear God that would lead to a calmness, a peace in the heart, an overflow in good conduct and respect and purity. I pray that they would joyfully submit and affirm and follow and encourage their husband in leadership. That the wife would make it a joy for the husband to lead because of the way they are interacting. That it would be set apart. I pray that through this, singles and the unmarried in the church would see a picture of the gospel. And for those who are outside of the church would see a flourishing marriage, a marriage that is set apart and want to know the reason behind it. I pray that our marriages would proclaim the excellences of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light and that our marriages would be set apart so that others would glorify God when they seek to speak evil of us or they peek in uh, and want to know what's really going on here. Amen? Let's pray.